live from Liverpool, The Dark Paranormal, Season 7. Hello and welcome back to The Dark Paranormal, Season 7. First and foremost, a big thank you to everyone who reached out following last week's debut episode of Season 7, Blood Runs Deep. Quite a few of you have emailed in to say that you're having trouble losing the image of what was in that box. And believe me, you're not alone. I don't think I'll ever hear the word sixpence again without conjuring that awful, terrifying image. On today's show, we revisit a topic which has proved to be some of our most popular episodes and some of my personal favourites. And that's those true paranormal experiences which seemingly concern some dabbling with the occult. The very idea that through chanting certain words or doing things in a certain way, you may be able to break down the veil between us and the spirit world is a fascinating one. Today's listener-submitted true paranormal experience definitely leaves us with more questions than answers. But given the story involved... I'm not too sure we'd ever really want to know what those answers are. But before we peel back the curtain on today's episode, I of course need to thank our wonderful team members over on Patreon. When you sign up to join our Patreon team, not only do you receive these episodes ad-free and before anyone else, you also receive a Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites, each and every week, even on the downtime between seasons. And there's well over 20 hours worth of Patreon-only audio to binge over there. We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over on Patreon. And we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. Just like these wonderful new team members have. Ronald Woody, Laura Harris, Anna Carew, Joseph Martin, Emma-Louise Gartside, Nick Coleman, Tram Hewer, Matty Flatman, Sophie, Jessica Ashworth, Autumn Millage, Monique Fannenstyle, Claire Iona, Subamafu, Autumn, Tyler Rocket, Joshua Bergia, Chris Hammond, Katie Reedy, Mia Paul, Heather Sharon, Ashley Pemble, Donna and Zach Morgison. Thank you so much guys for becoming our newest team members and I hope you enjoy all the early releases and of course the extra content. So don't forget to join our team, head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. Now, the term the occult comes from the Latin word occultus, meaning knowledge of the hidden. When you take a step back and truly think about it, we use the word the occult to normally signify something supernatural or paranormal. However, practitioners of the occult will simply tell you that they're using methods passed down over the centuries to bend and manipulate life as we know it to their will. They will tell you that occult books have been banned throughout the ages because knowing these hidden secrets makes people less subservient to government and to power. For example, what need has a person to go and work every day if they can do some sort of spell to bring wealth to them. And so the long-standing occult trope goes that the governments and people in power have long tried to suppress, ridicule and embarrass the very topic. 
However, occultists still thrive today, and a handful of those will try the ancient techniques to bend the very fabric of life to their will, and to, on occasion, talk to the dead. The following true paranormal experience comes in from Andrew from York. So, before we begin, lower the lights, make yourself comfortable, and of course, leave your disbelief at the door, as we hear all about the Devils of Dalkeith. I'd like to share my experience of what happened to me in Scotland in the 1980s. I should say I'm recently retired from the police force. I say this to infer that I'm old enough to have replayed this incident over and over in my head and still not find a satisfactory answer. Also, my lifetime in the police should point to the fact that I'm not prone to exaggeration or flights of fancy. My experience revolves around my late uncle, Henry. Henry was one of three children of my grandparents, consisting of my mother, Marie, my uncle Henry, and his twin brother Arthur. To say my uncle Henry was an interesting character would be an understatement. In his earlier life, he was part of a special task force during World War II, known as the Jedba Units. These units were dropped deep behind enemy lines in France, and they trained up local resistance units utilising anything they could lay their hands on to stop the German advances. Arthur, Henry's twin brother, suffered from an array of medical conditions and was unable to go to war. This apparently left him with a great deal of guilt. He married a local seamstress in our hometown of York and soon after left to live in a quiet village on the border of Dalkeith, just outside of Edinburgh. A few months after moving, his new wife became drastically unwell with cancer and died shortly after diagnosis. Unable to go on, Uncle Arthur sadly shot himself in that same house. Information thereafter is a bit sketchy. However, according to my mother, although the proper lines of communication were attempted to inform Uncle Henry about his brother's death, Well, be it down to the nature of the mission or a dropped telegram along the way, after the war, Uncle Henry returned to our home in York completely unaware of his brother's fate. My mother was never quite sure if it was the war, the news of his brother, or a combination of both, but apparently Uncle Henry was never the same again. In Uncle Arthur's will, he left the house to both Uncle Henry and my mother. However, Henry bought my mother out of her share and within a few weeks of returning home, he took all his belongings and moved to the house in Dalkeith. My mother said after this, it was as if Henry dropped off the earth. They rarely spoke, despite her sending numerous letters and, as these things tend to do, their relationship became non-existent. It was 1982 and I was looking forward to starting university in Edinburgh. I loved York, but I was keen to experience some independence. I'd been accepted into three different universities, but 
as a bit of a history buff, the pull of Edinburgh was too strong. Plus, my relationship with my father was getting rather frayed at this point. We seemed to be clashing constantly, and the overall atmosphere was rather grim. It was around this time that my mother received a call to say Uncle Henry had passed away, and that the Dalkeith house had been left to her in his will. Given the history of the house, both she and my father decided they would sell it as opposed to becoming landlords or similar. And this is where I saw an opportunity. I was due to start university in two months' time. My digs were already paid for and arranged. However, as I say, I was keen to get out from under my father's feet, and I think he would have agreed. And so, I suggested I would go up earlier, to the house in Dalkeith, and I would clear it out prior to any sale. Mother was slightly apprehensive, but father, as expected, seemed keen and therefore talked my mother around. My father offered to drive me up. However, keen to declare my independence from the very start, I opted instead to take the train into Waverley Station in Edinburgh and then get a bus out to Dalkeith. As I said earlier, I'm not one for flights of fancy, but as I stood outside of the three-storey, narrow home, a pang of fear hit me from nowhere. Was it the realisation of what being independent actually means that hit me for the first time? Possibly. However, the house, looking back at me silently under a deep grey sky, seemed to exude an energy. It felt, and I know how surreal this sounds, but it felt as if the entire house itself was peeking at me from behind a curtain like an introvert scowling at a salesman in the yard. The house was surprisingly narrow too. Although it was a detached house, several feet away from the surrounding fence, it was as if it had uncomfortably squeezed itself into that position and stayed rigid, unable to relax. Entering the hallway, I dropped my belongings and closed the door behind me, and I was hit by a sudden quick absence. Like when a loud radio is switched off and it takes your senses a while to recalibrate. Hello? I shouted. Of course, there was no reply and nor did I expect one. It was more out of habit, I guess. The reverberation of my voice bouncing off the bare beige walls and straight up the staircase told me that there was very little in this house to clear out and that my stay here would be more of a... I heard a very loud ticking of a clock, which I thought was coming from the room to my left, which I presumed was the living room. On entering, though, the sound seemed to be coming from outside the room. Slightly confused by this, I walked back out into the hall and listened. Silence. Wherever that sound was coming from, It had stopped. Throwing my bags into the living room, I went back into the hall. Time to take in the rest of the house. The second floor had a large front bedroom off the landing, a smaller back room and a bathroom. Entering the front room, 
I found it empty with just a single solitary bed against the wall, containing just a bare mattress. I'd assumed that I'd find similar, and had brought a sleeping bag with me. As grim as the place seemed, I was actually thrilled to have what felt like my own place, and skipped downstairs to get my stuff. As I jogged back to the bedroom, something had changed. The atmosphere was dense. My legs involuntarily went to jelly, as if I'd been threatened, but there was no logical reason for it. Everything looked identical. There... There was a faint smell of cordite. Like the scent of fireworks. I quickly glanced at the windows, but they were shut. Well, of course they were. The realisation that I was the first person in the house since my uncle made me aware that the smell must be internal. Which means something had changed. Maybe something was on fire. I rushed back downstairs and into the kitchen. Everything seemed fine. In fact, there was no smell. The same stood for the living room. Heading back upstairs, the smell seemed to have dispersed completely. Knowing the front room was fine, I checked the back room and the bathroom. Calmer now, given the smell seemed to have gone. Only one more place to check. The third floor. The attic space. I walked up the narrow wooden stairs towards the small door. It seemed stiff, but creaked open after some effort. Four figures draped in black cloth looked back at me. I almost fell down the stairs, my heart in my mouth. I... I breathed a sigh of relief as my eyes took in the sewing machine to the right and the fact that these figures all had a pole instead of legs. Mannequins. I put my hand to my chest and calmed my breathing. How funny. This'll be one to tell the grandkids, I thought. I slowly inched my way into the attic space, my adrenaline still not totally expired. The place was bare with the exception of the sewing machine and the mannequins. So, wait. There was a small chest against the far back wall. I'd missed it on my first look around as it was a dark teak colour which matched the floorboards. I tried to lift the lid, however I quickly could see that it was locked and required a key. I had a quick cursory glance around the vicinity to see if the key was laying around, but I found nothing. Okay, this wasn't a priority. I would search for the key another time. A barking from outside drew me to the window which overlooked the back garden. I could see the next-door neighbour playing with his dog, and took the opportunity to head outside, maybe ask him what supermarkets were in the area. I stepped on a small log to peek over the fence. Hello, I began. The guy jumped, startled, and looked at me suspiciously. Hello, he seemingly begrudgingly replied. I'm Henry's nephew. I'm going to be staying here a few weeks before going to university in Edinburgh. Oh, he replied, the ice seeming to thaw ever so slightly. He walked over to the fence. 
flashing the occasional cautious glance up to the attic window. So he was your uncle, eh? he asked. Yes. I never met him, though. We weren't really close, to be honest. The guy snorted and raised his eyebrows as if to say, I'm not surprised. I don't think anyone was close with him, said the man. I'm sorry to speak ill, but I wasn't a fan of your uncle's. Again, a cautious glance up to the attic. Oh, right, I replied. Any particular reason? Many, he replied, looking me dead in the eye. He was into some weird stuff. Devil stuff. Devil stuff, I replied, eyes wide. Yeah, well, something bloody evil anyway. Weren't shy about it either. How do you mean? I asked. Well, he'd have these weird bonfires over there. He nodded towards the end of the garden. All in hoods and robes and the like. The guy got a lot more animated, pointing his finger at the house. And once we had a cat go missing, and I'm sure it was him. What? He stole your cat? I said, the disbelief clearly showing in my voice. Sacrificed it more like, he replied, his voice rising like he'd waited years to get this off his chest. I seen them the same week it went missing, walking back from that bonfire with a small chest. My brain flashed the image of the chest in the attic. Bloody weirdo, he said to himself, again looking up at the attic. Catching himself mid-flow, he stopped. I'm sorry, that was all too far. I do apologise. Ever the apologist myself, I said, No, no, it's fine. I didn't realise. Like I say, I've never met him. He nodded up to the back of the house. When he'd have these bonfires, there'd be people stood looking out of each window, with like a black shroud over their face, staying perfectly still until it was all over. Well, to me, that sounded like the mannequins. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe this guy was just suspicious by nature. Changing tack, I asked for the details about the area. Local shops, that type of thing. And in fairness, the guy was more than happy to advise. Even going back into his house to get a pen and paper and draw me a map. Thanking him, I went back inside. Looking back, possibly largely influenced by that conversation... I was no longer as keen to head back into the attic. The conversation with the neighbour played on my mind as I headed out to do some food shopping. So much so that on the way back, I found a payphone and had arguably the strangest conversation I'd ever have with my mother. And at that point, I just started asking about the area, I said after giving my mother the full rundown of the conversation. Now, I fully expected, oh, people just gossip, or even, how interesting. But instead, I got silence. And then, in a serious tone, probably best to leave that chest alone then if it's locked, son. It's not nice to pry in people's belongings. That! was what she took from this. 
nothing about the people in robes or the bonfires or the accusations of animal sacrifice. Uh, oh, um, yeah, of course, I replied. Mother cleared her throat. <clears throat> How's your preparations for uni going anyway? She said in a bright breezy tone. What? That's it? I thought to myself. Um, good thanks. So, just going back to that neighbour a minute. Andrew, she sharply interrupted. That conversation is finished now, okay? Wow. I was literally speechless. Uh, yeah, okay. Sorry, um... Yeah, I'm I'm all set for uni. And the conversation moved on to stationery and how she would send up a food parcel the following week. The call ended and I literally stood dumbstruck in the phone booth. What was that about? I thought to myself. That evening, I cooked myself some soup and settled into my sleeping bag with a book. As I leant over to place my bowl to the side of the bed... I noticed something. There, jammed between the back leg of the bed and the wall, was a small iron key. There was no way I was going up into the attic at that time of night, so I picked it up, placed it in my wallet, and had a very disturbed night's sleep, tossing and turning all sorts of thoughts about the neighbour, my mother, the chest, all running through my head. Finally, daylight shone through the curtains. I wasn't convinced I'd even got an hour of sleep. However, I got myself up, washed and dressed, and two strong coffees later, found myself stood outside the attic door. I pushed open the door and peered inside. I might have missed it the first time, but I'm sure one of the mannequins wasn't close to the window, looking out. I would have noticed it, surely. I paused for a moment, looking around to see if anything else was jarringly out of place. After convincing myself I was in the clear, I slowly headed towards the back of the room, my eyes fixed on the small teak-coloured chest on the floor. I knelt down and slid the key into the lock, but it wouldn't turn. I suddenly became very conscious that I had my back to the entire room and got that strange pang of fear in my chest, so much so that I began forcing the key in between glances over my shoulder, the fear rising with each breath, and then the key turned and the chest unlocked. I took a deep breath. Mother had, in no uncertain terms, told me not to do this. But at that age, that was like a red rag to a bull. With apprehension, I slowly lifted the lid, my mind swirling with the thoughts of what I might find within. Letters. Letters and pictures. The letters were bound in a green ribbon. I quickly untied the ribbon and opened the top letter. It seemed recent and it was from my mother. A quick glance showed that she was giving an update on my schooling, and the fact that I'd chosen Edinburgh as a univer... Wait, 
This was recent news. Yet, according to my mother, they'd not spoken for years. Puzzled, I placed the letters to one side and looked at the photos. Old pictures of Uncle Arthur, pictures of the three of them as children, pictures of my grandparents, pictures of me on my first day at school. All at once, I felt awful. Yes, it appears my mum and Henry may have been in communication longer than she'd said, but here I was, building up some dark fantasy in my mind about a man who simply had a chest full of keepsakes. Keepsakes about the family that for one reason or another he felt he needed to distance himself from. I'd turned a sad, reclusive man's life into some sort of adventure. Clearly, the neighbour was just some curtain twitcher. The figures in the windows probably just the mannequins placed out of the way during a tidy round. And the bonfires? Big deal. My mother often had friends around by the fire in the back garden, especially around autumn. I felt the absolute worst as I bound the letters back up in the ribbon and placed them gently back inside the... What's that? Something stood out about the chest. A small black ribbon looped up either side of the bottom of the chest. Removing the photos and hooking my little fingers under each tiny loop, I gave a slight pull, and the base lifted. It was a false bottom. The fear was instantly back in my chest as the plywood lifted out further. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. There was a large silver pentagram on which sat some crushed leaves. Either side were two burnt down black candles, but the thing that made me almost faint in panic was the small feline skull that sat in the middle of the leaves. Someone was running up the attic stairs. I threw everything in the chest and shut the lid whilst instinctively shouting stop at the top of my lungs. Shaking and almost hyperventilating, I spun around waiting for the running intruder to burst through the door. Silence. Then a waft of cordite again. Followed by that ticking sound seemingly coming from the floor below. After what felt like an eternity, I crept to the door. Hello? I shouted, again not expecting a reply. I ran down to the front bedroom and grabbed my sleeping bag and my things. There was no way I was sleeping upstairs anymore. That night, I lay on the living room floor, pulling my sleeping bag up to my face. I was the most terrified I'd ever been. But what could I do? I was Mr. Independent now. Plus, calling my mother to say, I opened the chest, would be bad enough. But to add, and I think there's something supernatural happening, well, my want to be viewed as a sensible adult would certainly take a hit. Eventually, I must have dropped off, However, I stirred a few hours later. 
I woke up, but I still had my eyes closed, trying to drift back off when something landed on my forehead. Opening my eyes, I was paralysed as I saw a hooded figure at my head, one either side of me and one at my feet, four in total, all looking down at me so I could barely see the ceiling past them. No, I managed to half mumble, half shout in my burst from slumber and slowly regained enough energy to leap to my feet. And the figures were gone. Fumbling for the light, I headed to the back room mirror and looked at the dark liquid on my forehead. I touched it and rubbed it between my fingers. It had an oily feel to it and no discernible smell. I quickly looked up at the ceiling, hoping to see a stain or something that implied a leak, but the ceiling was clear. Heading back to the mirror, I spoke out loud to myself. You were asleep. It was a bad dream. There are no figures. However, I could not explain the oil on my head. Still, my repeating of my rational thoughts seemed to start to work as I talk sense into myself in that mirror. Just the dark playing tricks. You're fine. You are fine. I jumped and looked out to see a number of cats, six in total, all pacing back and forth at the patio window that led to the back garden. I was so terrified and shaking that I genuinely needed to sit down before I fell. I sat in that wooden chair until daylight and then decided that was enough. I called my mother the next morning and said I wanted to come home before heading to university. Looking back, rather suspiciously, she didn't even question why. That afternoon, my mother and father arrived at the house in Dalkeith to pick me up. I, of course, had been sat outside with all my belongings since we agreed I would return. My mother took the keys off me and said she would go inside and ensure everywhere was locked up. So, I headed to the car where, for the first time in a long time, I was actually pleased to see my father. We waited in that car for almost an hour, with my father several times remarking that my mother was taking her sweet time. However, tellingly, never once did he suggest he would go and look for her. Eventually, my mother came out. Under her arm was the chest. I panicked. She would have had no idea what was in that thing. She would have just seen the letters and photos completely unaware of what lay beneath. She opened the back door and slid the chest in next to me. I was thinking of what to do or how to broach it when she got into the passenger seat and said, Did you look in the chest? No, I instinctively lied. With a smile, she said, Well, take a look. There's some nice photos in there. With my heart beating in my ears, I placed the chest on my lap and opened the lid. Two things jumped out at me. Firstly, there were less letters than had been there before, and the top letter, according to the postmark, was dated ten years ago. And second, and most disturbing, the letters and the photos were deeper in the chest. You see, the false bottom 
and its contents had been removed. Why are your hands muddy? asked my father. Oh, I just pulled some weeds in the back to make the place look nicer, my mother replied. My father put the radio on and we all headed back home to York. My mother died in the early 90s. I never asked her about the house or the contents of the chest ever again. But the question I've asked myself ever since was, was my mother not only aware, but part of, whatever went on in the house? Or did she simply bury the contents of the chest to save any embarrassment and be done once and for all with the house in Dalkeith? I will say this. I did find one unsent letter to Henry from my mother whilst clearing out her things. Again, it was dated around the early 80s, long past when my mother claimed to have stopped talking to her brother. And there was one sentence in the letter that may be completely coincidental, but still sends a chill down my spine when I think of it. It read, Also, have you had any further successes communicating with Arthur? Send my love, if so. We've had nothing since our last bonfire. I think one of the truest statements ever made is you don't really know what goes on behind closed doors. If we look at what seems to be implied with that final letter, we have your everyday suburban housewife apparently trying to conjure up spirits in her back garden. And if we sow some of the seeds together of the story to form one theory, a woman with a secret that she kept hidden from her immediate family, that secret being a deep knowledge of the occult. If nothing else, what we can pick up from this story is that how someone looks on the outside is no reflection of the person they may be. And that brings us to the end of episode 2 of season 7. Thank you so much for choosing to spend your time with me here on The Dark Paranormal. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can join our team over at Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash The Dark Paranormal, where I'll be speaking to our Patreons on Sunday for another Dark Bites. But I will speak to you all next week for Episode 3 of Season 7. And believe me when I say, next week's true paranormal experience is one that has stuck with me ever since I read it. So until next week, remember, if you're discussing the paranormal, always try to leave a bit of your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next time, here on The Dark Paranormal.